Good morning, ZPC. It's good to be with you today. I don't know about you, but I was hopeful that we would wake up to some more snow, and we did. Um, it was beautiful. So as you probably know, it's the first Sunday of 2024, and I'm not gonna talk to you about New Year's resolutions. This is what I think. If we both have kept them in March, then we can talk about how we're doing. But the likelihood of me still practicing my New Year's resolutions is, is slim, um, and, and I'm okay with that. Um, so today, we're going, to, um, we're going to talk about the Great Commission, and this is in Matthew 28. We'll get to Luke. We'll pick up uh, next week again where we left off before Advent, and I will give you some context as we jump into this passage because as you've probably experienced, when you go through a book, it's really helpful because you kind of remember, most of you, um, remember what you've, we've been talking about for the last year or a few months or so. And so I will give you some of that context. I think it's important um, in this, um, particularly for this passage to do so. But let me read our passage for today. It comes from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him but they doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for that quiet snow that fell yesterday and even last night as we were resting. It made the bare trees and our dormant grass look magical. As we come to you today, we ask that you would continue to slow down our minds, our bodies, our souls, and let us hear from you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, God, the one who pursues us. Amen. I said today, our passage is the Great Commission. My early understanding of this passage, probably in my teens and early in college, um, that it indeed was great. And hearing it often made me feel like I was falling short and that I needed to be doing more. In fact, I needed to be doing more evangelism and more missions work and uh, maybe even going overseas to do missions work. And that's true. Uh, to make disciples certainly requires us telling people about Jesus. And perhaps one day I may be called to go overseas. But I've come to understand the story of this great commission that was given to the 11 is richer than my earlier understanding. And right now, Steve and I are working on making disciples in our household, and they're seven, five, and four. And I came to this fuller um, understanding of the Great Commission by, like I said just a minute ago, by considering the context. So uh, just a high-level overview. So Matthew chapter 26 and chapter 27, it's the Last Supper. It's where Jesus predicts his betrayal by Judas and that he's going to be abandoned by the others. He says that they will fall away. And then I imagine there's a lot of shame when that happens. And then we have Jesus's death 
and mourning. And then comes chapter 28, which is where we are today. And Jesus is raised from the dead. It, this is the resurrection story, a story of wonder. Everything that Jesus said would happen has come true. A dead man was raised and is walking on earth, not just cosmically or spiritually or in a ghost form. We're actually going to see in Luke that Jesus eats fish with the disciples. And so that's where we're picking up. We're picking up at in Matthew 28, the story of the resurrection. So I'm going to go into a little bit of what happened at the beginning of 28. So just bear with me. Um, if it's a long verse, I'll put it up on the screen for you. But it's important because it's going to help us understand uh, in what, how did the disciples, um, what was the condition of their hearts and souls when they received the Great Commission? So Matthew 28 starts with two women, both Mary. They go to, both named Mary. They go to see the tomb where Jesus was placed. And you probably remember it. An angel appears to them. In verses five to seven, that angel says, do not be afraid, for I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised. And he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples he has been raised, and indeed, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him. This is my message for you. And the women left the tomb, and they were um, full of fear and great joy. And do you remember who meets them as they're on their way to talk to the disciples? It's Jesus. And he says to these two Marys, he says, greetings. And that actually can be translated as a very simple hi. Showing us right away that the Jesus after the resurrection is the same Jesus as he was before the resurrection, that he's still friendly, that he's still human with us. And he gives a similar message to the women. And he says, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So it's a similar message, but did you pick up on the thing that was switched? The angel says, go tell my disciples um, go tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. But here, Jesus tells the women, go and tell my brothers. In this, one commentator says, in this one word, brothers, is crammed the whole New Testament gospel of forgiveness. For Jesus could have called his disciples a lot of names at this time. And every time this part of the resurrection story is told, forgiveness is preached. Naming them his brothers is warm. So you see, this message to the disciples is not just to go ahead to Galilee, but it's also a message of forgiveness and invitation to be in relationship with him, despite all they have done and not done. Because remember, recently, the disciples betrayed Jesus. They deserted him. They fell away and they denied him. And so before Jesus asks anything of them, before he gives this great commission, he honors their relationship with him by restoring it. And that's the backdrop in which we enter the great commission. So we have the 11 disciples going to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
So let me just start off by saying I'm encouraged that they went to Galilee. We can be hard on the disciples. I'll say I can be hard on the disciples. And really, they could have refused. But rather, they went. I'm imagining that it took an incredible amount of courage and humility and vulnerability to do this journey to Galilee. And we start this section of the story with 11, not 12 disciples, because Judas is missing. Dale Bruner says that this number 11 limps, that it's not a perfect 12, that we begin the Great Commission with a limp, with Jesus commanding a defective 11. He continues and says that this is reflective of the church that Jesus sends into the world, our 11-ish church. It's imperfect, it's fallible. It's composed of people who have betrayed, deserted, and denied Jesus. Yet Jesus chooses this 11-ish church, this imperfect church, to do his perfect work. This group of 11 travels to Galilee. They're in Jerusalem, so it's about um, 70 miles away. So um, that's longer than I realized. I, I have yet to make that journey. I would love to sometime. Um, but I was told it would take maybe two to three weeks to get there. So why Galilee? Why did Jesus have them travel to Galilee? You see, we know that Jesus promised to meet them there in Matthew 26, because after the Last Supper, Jesus predicts that all of the disciples are going to fall away. And then he continues and he says, but I will be raised up and I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And at that time, Peter says, oh, no, 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 these things are not going to happen. I don't think that they fully appreciated what an incredibly gracious promise this is until probably right about now in the story as they're heading to Galilee. Saying, do you remember? He said we would meet there. You see, this story, knowing that they had fallen away, in this story, they know that they've fallen away. And even after his resurrections, his resurrection, they're still in his plans. It's not just some supernatural, spiritual plan, this cosmic plan uh, that is disconnected from those in the early story. No, these very fallible disciples matter to Jesus. His promise to them meant, even, even you leaving me now will not mean me leaving you then. Here in our passage, we're seeing Jesus keeping his promise that this recommencement of fellowship with the disciples in Galilee is a picture that demonstrates Jesus' forgiveness and his continued invitation into relationship. For many of the disciples, perhaps all, um, it's, it's up for debate, uh, which seems true for a lot of the things that I was reading about in this passage. Um, some of the factual questions, uh, like which mountain did they go to? We don't really know. Um, but in Matthew 4, we know that uh, Galilee is home. This is where Jesus calls the first disciples, walking by the Sea of Galilee. He calls to Peter and to Andrew, who are fishing, and he says, follow me. I will make you fish for people. And you see, now Jesus is fulfilling this calling in Galilee. It's coming full circle. 
Steve and I lived in Orlando for um, about only five years, but it felt like it was a lot longer than that time. It could be because it was so hot. But um, um, we, when we moved away, when we moved back to Indiana, we um, decided, okay, it's time to go back and see all of our friends in our community. And I remember so vividly that first time when we traveled, when we traveled back to Florida. And I don't know if it's because we launched brand new careers together there, or um, probably most significant is that we became parents in Florida. Uh, but every time I return, it feels like I'm walking into um, truly a trip down memory lane. I remember we took a turn off I-4 into our little neighborhood, College Park, and um, we stopped at our house and opened up the door, and I was just hit by the hot, humid smell of asphalt. <laughs> it's Florida, central Florida. And I know some of you think it sounds pretty good right about now, but it didn't in October. And I just was flooded with the memory of me walking Henry, our oldest now, uh, well, our oldest then, um, around and around and around the block because he would never, I just think, I thought maybe he'd never stop crying. And I also remembered thinking, oh, I wonder if those neighbors are going to call the police. Like, do they think I'm doing something wrong? I promise I'm not. I just can't get him to stop crying. Um, so just this idea of returning home or returning to a place that has significant memory um, I, I just imagine the disciples, this isn't in the text, but I do imagine that this journey for the disciples from Jerusalem to Galilee, that they're traveling past the very spots where they got to see Jesus do ministry. Maybe it's not the exact spot, but maybe it looks very similar. Oh, that's where Jesus healed that woman. Hey, here we are passing the Sea of Galilee can you believe that he walked on water? Using my imagination here, I just think maybe they walked by a stone where they received a harsh rebuking from him. And then maybe also another place where they had experienced a moment of his tender affection. You see, this time for the disciples, this doing ministry with Jesus in Galilee it was probably a very intense season for them, full of everything, full of joy and laughter, lots of different people. There was death and confusion. And so coming back to Galilee, to the place where they did their ministry with Jesus, I just, it seems like it's a really good mentoring move of Jesus. Like, I'm going to restore your relationship. And before we reconnect, at least in the story in Matthew, and we're going to stay in the Matthew text, I want you to remember all of these good and profound and amazing moments that we did together in ministry. And I just wonder if maybe that journey helped them move beyond their shame, their guilt, maybe their sadness at their own hearts, at their deserting and denial of Jesus, and really prepared them to receive the Great Commission. You see, we serve a relational God. Here we see an intentional pursuit of particular people in particular locations from a God who's seeking relationship. So in verse 17, they see him, and it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but they doubted. 
So when asked to preach today, Jerry gave me a few different uh, options of scripture, and I was reading through them and pondering which one to select, and this is the reason I selected this this passage for today. I just couldn't get past this idea that Matthew is describing the disciples as those that worship and doubt in the same sentence, and I wanted to understand more because I, quite frankly, have felt that way. And so after doing some digging, um, there's a lot of scholarly chatter. Um, Wouldn't you like to be in that conversation with the theologians arguing, you know, what exactly does this mean? Probably some of you know, I would love it. Um, Well, they're asking, you know, did the disciples worship and doubt at the same time? Was it just some of the disciples worshiping and some of the disciples doubting? You know, personally, I want to know, you know, which disciples are we talking about? Um, You know, because then I can be like, well, of course. I would never do that, Uh, but I probably would. How many, was it a few of them? Was it most of them? For how long did they doubt? Was this just a fleeting moment of doubt? Was this for the rest of their life? We don't know. We don't know. There's a lot of disagreement on this. What did Matthew mean? But regardless, he included it in the same sentence. He said, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but they doubted. You see, Matthew's communicating us that this Christian life is mixed, that the disciples are living their lives between worship and doubt, or perhaps mixed with both, and Christians are both believers and doubters, that we are both adoring and wandering, that we are both trusting and questioning. Even at such a moment when Jesus is resurrected and walking with them, Everything had been fulfilled. And here we have it, still very 11-ish. It feels a little clumsy, but if you have to check the internal temperature of your own heart or my own, it's about as real as it gets. And so let's remember this, that the disciples are real people with complex and mixed feelings. You know, and what's, I think, even maybe a little more mind-blowing, is that Jesus doesn't separate those that worship and those who doubt it. He didn't say, okay, you, you're all in. You come over here and you have some work to do, so you go over here. No, in fact, he doesn't even address the doubt this time in the story of Matthew. He just, he quietly overlooks it as if he's not surprised. And he gives the great commission to all of them the same to the worshipers and to the doubters alike. Dale Bruner says Matthew's inclusion of this divided mind at the very birth of mission is his way of saying that doubt should not be taken too tragically. Doubt simply is. It's a component of the disciples' little faith. They're still imperfect humanity, this side of the general resurrection. And in the midst of this tension, we see Jesus coming toward the disciples. In verse 18, it says, Jesus came to them and said. So this word came literally means stepped forward. It's only used one other time in the book of Matthew toward the disciples. It's after the transfiguration, and they're literally flat on the ground, and Jesus comes towards them. And so we have this image of Jesus physically moving toward the disciples, these imperfectly believing disciples, those living in this tension, those that worship in doubt, and showing us that even in our our imperfect worship, Jesus moves towards us. 
I can imagine him saying in his mind, they are ready. They're ready for it. But here's why they're ready. In verse, he continues, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is why they're ready. Jesus claims all executive power. He's saying he is in complete control. In a way, it almost forces the disciples to make decisions about him in the midst of their doubts. And he continues, he says, go, therefore. And this verb, or not verb, oh boy, therefore. Is therefore, Uh uh-huh. It's not a filler word. I was thinking a lot about imperative verbs this week. So um, anyway, therefore is, I can go into that too if you'd like to discuss, you know, the bossy verbs. Therefore, it's not a filler word. Jesus is signaling to the disciples. He's saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Rest easy. I am in control. You can worship in doubt. I am in control. And then he says, go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. There's one primary central command here in this passage. It is to make disciples of all nations. This term, all nations, um, I find this really interesting. It relates back to the promise in Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, this promise from God to Abraham that says that in him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Remember, this is the plan all along. And you see, we're in the last chapter of Matthew, and Matthew is referring us to chapter one, verse one, where he starts his gospel talking about the genealogy of Jesus. And he starts with Abraham. Therefore, go make disciples. I was discussing this word go with Stan Johnson and wondering, is it, is it translated or is the original language like go now? I think that maybe that's how I had heard it in the past. Or maybe after reading some commentaries and trying to understand the original text, it meant something like as you are going, when you go, as you go, make disciples. Stan said, it's the latter. I said, Stan, is it like as you're going to the grocery, make disciples? And he said, yes, Sam, as you're going to Kroger, make disciples. In effect, this means working with people over a period of time. It's our daily lives. This has always been on the forefront of what we're hoping to do at this church. And I'm learning so much from those who have gone before me uh, to to really look and and to live as you all are living what this looks like. In fact, it's a part of the church's DNA. The mission here has always been called together by God to make disciples and to release them for service in our broken world. So these big things like winning people to Jesus and bringing about repentance, we can leave those up to God. We disciple by living among people, by talking with those who ask questions, by calling people to baptism 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in simple church meetings. We teach all, including ourselves, an ever-increasing loyalty to Jesus' commands. You see, Stan Johnson also said this, the Great Commission is not a program, it's a lifestyle. All of these actions, to make disciples as you are going about your life, to baptize and to teach are slow, they're corporate, meaning they're done in relationship and they're earthly directions. One commentator said, take your time, bring people along with you gently. My husband, Steve, does this very well, this idea of bringing people along gently, although mostly me. And I'm gonna tell another birding story about him, so I think this is the last one I get to tell, he told me. Uh, But I'll never forget a Christmas dinner, this was early in our dating years, before iPhones and long before the Merlin Bird ID app. Uh, Someone in his family was gifted a book, and it was a book that actually had a corresponding bird call with it. And so all, my memory is all these, you know, all multiple generations of Spencer uh, family sitting around their dining room table, and they basically ended up playing Guess the Bird Call. So quite honestly, at that point, the only bird call I could have really told you was an owl, because, you know, hoo hoo, we all know that's an owl. So I remember just slinking out of, the, out of the dining room thinking, wow, I really have nothing to add to this conversation at all. And I did decide to keep dating him after that, by the way. He, uh, you know, he didn't care. So he would bring his binoculars with us when we would go on hikes. Occasionally, I'd see something interesting. Um, he'd pull out the bird guide book and read about what he saw, and he'd share it with me. And so, you know, slowly, I realized there actually were some birds that I wanted to see in my life. And so I love to travel, so we decided let's plan some vacations around finding birds. Perfect. I like to travel, you like birds, that's how we're going to choose our vacation spot. So we decided in a moment of, um, I don't even know, we decided that we wanted to go see puffins. Do you know what puffins are? They're so cute. So I'm like, I, I could like, you can show the picture, I like the puffins. Yes. A few trips, it took us a few trips, actually. We didn't see them the first time we set out to see them. But it took my breath away when I saw that puffin. I was hooked. All of a sudden, I actually wanted to go and seek out the birds. And now I'm the one that if I think I'm seeing an indigo bunting, they like to sit in the middle of the road and they're these like beautiful turquoise birds that we have in Indiana. We'll stop the car and I'll turn around to show the kids there was an indigo bunting. You know, he's done this also with country music (laughs) and my love for Tolkien's Middle Earth. So... You know, uh, he does this well. But you see, it took time to pique my curiosity. It just took time. It took patience. There was no program that he could have said, okay, how to get your wife to like to go birding with you. There is nothing like that. He just invited me to do something around him that he loved. To go and find things that he believes are good, true, and beautiful. And I think this is the process of making disciples. It is a lifestyle. You see, Jesus was not in a hurry. So bring people along with you gently 
and invite them on your journey with Jesus. He continues in verse 20, he says his concluding words, and remember I am with you always till the end of the age. This promise of Jesus to be with us literally means I will fight for you, but not just a protection. It means I, Jesus, will enable your obedience to the Great Commission. That is also so freeing. I will give you courage and wisdom in discipling. I will encourage baptism. I will give you creativity and teaching. And the promise that Jesus is with us always is not just on most days or some days or the days when the disciples really had prayed enough or when the disciples or us are just in our Christian churchy activities. No, it's in all things. At all times, Jesus is present. Again, we see this relational component to Jesus that promises that he will be with us every single day of our lives, even when we do not realize it. So this command to make disciples of all nations, it's it's surrounded by these two assurances, one that begins the Great Commission and one that ends it. And the first one is that all authority has been given to Jesus. And the second is that Jesus is with us all the days. There is as much space given to grace as there is demand in the Great Commission. My overarching observation is how relational this text is. We have a relational God at his very being. We see this here in the text. I'm going to leave this for Jerry to preach on, understanding the Trinity. The name of the Father, we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We have a God that values restoring relationship with us. We see it because before he issues the Great Commission, he's offering forgiveness to his brothers. And an invitation, I said I'd see you in Galilee, I'm going to see you again in Galilee. I'm not surprised. I knew this would happen. And that all of this is done in relationship with others. As I was coming to an end, I just felt like something was missing. And I, ah, it was the Eugene Peterson quote. We haven't had one yet. (laughs) So we're going to end with that. Uh, No, actually, in all seriousness, he has this book called Living the Resurrection, and it is worth a read. In fact, I've read it twice. It is it is, it is a beautiful exposition of what it means to allow the, the, the resurrection of Jesus to infiltrate all of our lives and all that we do. It's so good. I wish I could have just preached the book. It was, that would have been easier. Um, but at the very end, his third chapter, he discusses resurrection friends. And he discusses and he's going through the different resurrection stories, including the story from Matthew 28. And he says that, you know, we have a tendency to rely on professionals, the pastors and the professors to direct our spiritual formation. Maybe it's the podcaster that you listen to every week to tell you what to think about Jesus and how you should be experiencing him. But he says spiritual formation, not that podcasts and pastors and professors are bad. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we're tending as a culture to rely more and more on professionals. But he said spiritual formation not only should not be, but cannot be professionalized. 
It takes place essentially in the company of friends, of peers. Jesus' resurrection takes place in the company of friends who know each other by name, some of whom we know by name. The resurrection is not an impersonal exhibit put on display before crowds. I love that. The resurrection is not an impersonal exhibit put on display before crowds, but the resurrection is experienced in a network of personal relationships. The named people remind us that the resurrection takes place among men and women like us, puzzled, bewildered, confused, questioning, even stubbornly doubting friends, and yes, also, singing and believing and praying and obeying friends. All of this derives from the Trinity, personal relations, not impersonal formation. Spiritual formation happens when we know each other by name. Discipleship happens in the company of friends. Let us not forget that the ones commissioned were 11-ish, that the resurrection takes place among men, women, and children, like us. A mentor of mine says, the quality of life, the quality of our lives, is shaped by the quality of our relationships. So first, of course, our relationship with God. The quality of our relationship with God shapes the quality of our lives, but so is that true in our relationship with others. Our spiritual formation, our discipleship, It happens around tables. It happens while we pass the broccoli, while we argue with a sibling, while we pay the bills, while we correct our children. Very ordinary, everyday tasks in the company of friends and the company of the one who has all authority on heaven and earth. Amen. Let's pray. God, what a gift this resurrection story is to us. I ask that we would continue to be a church that is called together by God to make disciples and to release them for service in this broken world. Show us how we can grow to be more like you and show us how we can gently invite others alongside of us in our journey. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.